thank you that we can call you our Father. Thank you that you treat us in a fatherly way. That as a father shows compassion to his children, so you, Lord God, show compassion to your children. Thank you for making us a part of your family, for adopting us out of the muck and mire of our sin, and for placing our feet on the solid rock of Christ. All glory be to Christ today. All glory, all honor, all praise be to Christ for redeeming us, for saving us, for adopting us, for making us your children, Father. So we thank you for all of these good things that we sing about, that we celebrate. And we pray now you would continue to remind us of the precious truths of your word. God, I pray today that you would encourage us that you would challenge us by the truth of your word, that you would allow us to see and savor the kindness and beauty of Christ, our Savior, through your word. We pray that your word would become alive, that it would challenge, that it would impact, that it would change us to the core of our being. Lord, we need you now. Attend to the preaching of your word and Holy Spirit of God, Help us to see. I pray particularly for those who have never trusted in Christ. I pray today they would see Him as glorious and beautiful and would turn from their sins and trust in Him. Would you do that work today in this moment in this room? We pray you do it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to our dads. Can we just acknowledge that being a good dad is very hard work? It is not a work for the faint of heart. And so if your dad is still alive, please communicate that to him today, how thankful you are for him. And give lots of grace to your dad today. It is a hard work. And I thank God for the example of good dads I see all around our church, for the ways our dads are present in the lives of their families and their children, uh, sacrificial in so many ways. I'm thankful for that, and I pray by God's grace that we would keep up that good work. Well, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. We're studying the book of Revelation now, the last book in the Bible, and we find ourselves in the 14th chapter. Chapter 14 serves as sort of a conclusion Uh, to this section here in the middle of the book of Revelation that has included some very discouraging truths. Uh, Revelation chapters 12 and 13, we've seen the past couple weeks, they introduce us to an unholy trinity, the dragon and the two beasts. The dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil himself, has devoted himself to making following Jesus as hard as he possibly can in this world. There is an unseen spiritual realm that impacts everyday life for us. And being aware of these realities, being aware of this war, being aware of this battle, helps us endure and stand firm in our faith in Jesus. But the vision of Revelation 14 stands in stark contrast to the discouraging truths of 12 and 13. Because here in Revelation 14, we get this glimpse of how this epic spiritual war is going to end. For every person in all of history, this war ends either with joy in heaven 
or wrath in hell. For every person, this war, this battle, this life ends with either eternal joy in heaven or eternal wrath in hell. Now, you may think those are outdated ideas. You may think that that is an old-fashioned way to view the world, but this passage is teaching us truth from God. You see, ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think or how you feel about these things. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. It matters what God has said. And the question we're going to be confronted with as we read this passage and study this passage is, do you believe this is God's Word? Do you believe that this is the truth? So follow along as we read Revelation chapter 14 this morning. This is the Word of God. John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, the second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, the third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, 
for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for, the grape, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Well, as you can see pretty clearly, this chapter consists of three separate scenes. But if I had to summarize the whole chapter, it would be this. Jesus wins by saving His people and slaying His enemies. Jesus wins by saving His people and slaying His enemies. So as I read this chapter, I think these visions are showing us something of what will happen when Jesus returns. As I read the book of Revelation, I see this repeated retelling of history consummated with the return of Jesus. The technical term that scholars use is recapitulation. There's this retelling of the same story again and again with using different metaphors, using different symbols. This, these visions give us different but complementary metaphors that end with the second coming of Jesus. And so according to this passage, when Jesus returns, the earth will be harvested. Those in Christ will be with Christ in unimaginable glory and joy. And those who worship the beast will experience unimaginable, eternal condemnation. According to verse 12, these visions are intended, their purpose is to encourage us to press on, to endure, to keep God's commandments, to keep our faith in Jesus. The reason God showed these things to John, the reason He had John write these visions down is so that we would endure, so that we would carry on believing in Jesus to the end. So let's look more closely at each of these three scenes or three visions in chapter 14. The first vision is in verses 1-5. through the saints sing in glory. The saints sing in glory in verses 1 through 5. So in verse 1, John looks and he beholds the Lamb on Mount Zion. 
And so here is the lion lamb again. Remember, he was central in chapter 5, and he's still central here in chapter 14. He is still standing in victory. After all the attempts of the dragon and the beast, Jesus is still victorious. And He is the center and He is the focus of the worship of all of heaven. And of course, He is standing because He is alive forevermore. Though slain, He stands alive. None compares to His power, to His glory. He is indeed the King of all. And notice where the Lamb stands. Where is He standing? He is standing on Mount Zion. Now Zion in the Scripture can either refer to the physical mountain that was near Jerusalem or to heaven itself. It is used in both ways. And so to me, this is clearly a reference to heaven. In fact, look over, or you don't have to look, but let me just read Hebrews 12, verses 22-24. through 24. It says this, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn. You see that word firstborn? It's repeated there in Revelation 14. Who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so John tells us the Lamb is standing in the heavenly Jerusalem. And notice who is standing with Him. The 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Now, we've already seen this number, remember back in chapter 7, and there we saw clearly that this is not meant to be taken literal. This isn't referring to just a subset of really super spiritual Christians who are sort of a cut above all the rest, but rather this number is symbolic. 12 times 12 times 1,000 is symbolic of all the redeemed saints of all time. And so this is an epic picture of the universal church of Jesus Christ finally gathered all together in one place. They will all be there on that day standing with the Lamb in glory. And notice some details, some characteristics that we are given about these redeemed saints. They're they're standing there with the Lamb, but notice also they are sealed They are sealed. As we have seen, the idea of sealing or marking is very important to the book of Revelation. Just before we reread verse 1 of chapter 14, we see that in chapter 13 ends with the beast marking or sealing those who worship it, signifying ownership. The beast marking out those who are his. Well, here we see in verse 1 that the 144,000, that is, all believers have the Lamb's and the Father's name written on their foreheads. God seals His servants to mark them out as His own, to protect them. He puts His own name on us in the form of the Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing our redemption. This means we are God's people 
forever. We are labeled as God's own possession, bearing His own name. Christian, this is your primary identity. You are one who has been marked out by God. You are one who has been sealed by the grace of God. You are His. This is who you are. You've been set apart. You've been branded with His very own name. And so notice they're sealed. But secondly, notice also they are singing. They are singing. Notice verses 2 and 3. We have this epic picture of the joy and victory that we will know in the Lamb's presence. Notice how loud this singing is. John hears a sound that he describes as the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. In other words, this sound that was coming from this redeemed choir was like a massive waterfall, like many thunders. And what John heard, he says, was also like the sound of the harpists. Now, harps were instruments of victory and beauty. You played the harp to celebrate something grand. And so just imagine this sound. An overwhelmingly loud sound, but not obnoxious. Not an obnoxious sound like people playing instruments who are not in sync. But a soul-calming sound. A sweet sound, a loud but pleasant sound reverberating from Mount Zion. Friends, notice this passage is not teaching that we will sit on clouds and play harps in heaven. I don't know where that idea came from. You see these cartoons where these little cherubs are sitting on clouds and they're playing harps. I don't know if it came from this verse right here, but notice John does not say the redeemed are sitting on clouds playing harps. He says the sound was like the harps playing. He's comparing the voice of this multitude to victorious harps that are resounding like waterfalls and thunders. And notice in verse 3 that the song the saints sing is a special song. We will sing a song, it says, that no one else has ever known. It says no one is even able to learn this song if they're not part of the redeemed. In other words, even the purest angel is not able to sing this song that the redeemed will learn. I cannot wait to sing this song with you and with all other believers in the presence of the victorious Lamb. It will be a song unlike any other that we have ever sung. Will you be part of this choir singing this song? Will you be there? Will your voice be part of the, the waterfall and the harpist? I hope so. So they are sealed. They are singing. But notice third, they are sanctified. They are sanctified. Verses 4 and 5 describe the people of God as pure and blameless. They are those who have not defiled themselves and no lie was found in their mouth. They are described as first fruits for God and they, they follow the Lamb wherever the Lamb goes. Now, who of us would dare to claim this description of ourselves? 
Like, if this is the people in heaven, then I don't belong there. If, if this is the description of the people who are redeemed, I don't belong there. And that's the point, right? No one who finds themselves in heaven deserves to be there. No one who finds themselves singing this special song thinks to themselves, boy, I'm sure, sure glad he recognized that I'm so great and made me part of this choir. No, friends, all of us are defiled. All of us are impure. No one follows Jesus in every way. But the point is that we have been redeemed. Our sin has been washed away and we have been clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus in His perfection. And so this is a description of who Jesus has made us to be. And I don't think this description is meant to be like some sort of absolute way where we see this literally. Like it's not saying only virgins are part of the 144,000. You see, the Bible has glorious things to say about marriage and sexual relations inside of marriage. And so what does that mean? Well, I think it's referring to worship. Right? In the Bible, idolatry is often labeled as adultery. We are the bride of Christ, and when we worship idols, it is as if we are committing sexual immorality against our husband. And so it's saying the 144,000 haven't given themselves over to the beast. The 144,000 haven't worshipped the dragon. They haven't compromised their faith. They have been faithful to their first love by God's grace. They haven't slept with the harlot of Babylon. And so the picture of the people of God here. He said we are redeemed, that we are saved, and that we are sanctified by the grace of God. And on that day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will be fully glorified, perfect in Him. Now, think about this, the point of this first vision in verses 1-5. through We are given a glimpse of our future here. If we are in Christ, this is our future. We are given a glimpse of what we will do. We were given a glimpse of who we will be. We're given a glimpse of where we will be when Jesus returns. The point of this vision is endurance. Glimpses of glory, glimpses of heaven, glimpses of Mount Zion, glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth are intended to fuel us for the battle we face even today. You've heard some people say things like, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Friends, that's impossible. It's impossible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. The only people who are of any good here on earth are people who have their eyes fixed on things above. The only people who are of any good are people who know the glory and the majesty and the joy that awaits us in King Jesus' presence. So friends, please hear this encouragement to endure. We are almost home. This life is short compared to the eternity that we will spend in the presence of King Jesus and presence of the Lamb on Mount Zion. And so endure. Be faithful. Don't give up. Can I, can I say that to the dads in this room? Be faithful. Don't give up. Endure. It is worth it. It is worth it. The Lamb is worth it. So that's the first vision in verses 1-5. through But notice the second vision in verses 6-13. through Here we see that the angels warn of judgment. The angels warn of judgment. So in verses 6-11, through John sees three angels flying over him. And he hears these three angels make some 
very important announcements. The first angel is in verses 6 and 7. And this first angel proclaims an eternal gospel to those who dwell on earth. The content of what this angel proclaims, notice it in verse 7, is fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. This angel says to all of creation, all tribes and tongues and languages, fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him alone. This is the responsibility of every person in every nation on this globe. The chief sin of all the peoples of the world is that they don't worship God and they don't give Him the glory that He deserves. The Lord made it all. He is the Maker of heaven and earth and therefore He demands and deserves the worship of every tribe and tongue and nation to fear Him and to worship Him. And this angel says the hour of judgment is coming. See, this is the good news of this proclamation. This is the gospel of this proclamation. And it's that there is still time before the judgment comes. You've been told how to escape this judgment that is coming. Fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. The second angel is in verse 8. This angel proclaims that Babylon has fallen because of her immorality. Now, in just a few chapters, we're going to study Babylon in full, but basically, references to Babylon in Revelation are symbolic. Babylon is the city of the beast. Babylon is a metaphor for the sinful world system that is opposed to God, and Babylon has seduced and tempted the nations, and she will be overthrown. She has fallen because of the death and resurrection and victory of Jesus. We will see more of that when we get to chapter 17 and 18. But notice the third angel is in verses 9 through 11. What this angel proclaims is seriously sobering. And notice that this angel proclaims this judgment in a loud voice. Look again at verses 9 through 11. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Friends, God's wrath is real and it is overwhelmingly fierce. Those who worship the beast and those who receive the mark, that is, those who refuse to worship Jesus, we are told they will drink the wine of God's wrath poured to full strength that is undiluted, and they will drink it from the cup of God's anger. We are told they will be tormented with fire and sulfur, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever And notice, they will have no rest. That is no peace, day or night. Beloved, this is one of the clearest passages in Scripture on the reality of hell. 
Now, I know this is intended like much of Revelation to be metaphorical and symbolic. However, friends, you have to understand this, and we've said this again and again. The metaphors in Revelation aren't intended to communicate that the terror is less than described, but more. The metaphors and symbols aren't intended to to, to say, it's not really this bad. No, they're intended to say, it's this bad and worse. These metaphors are horrific in their clarity. And the reality is far more horrific than can be described with symbols. The reality of hell is far worse than any of us could even come to imagine. And anyone who would come and claim that this is unjust or unfair does not understand the blazing holiness and righteousness and purity of God. Friends, here's the price tag of our sin. Sin always hides the price tag from us. Sin always obscures its consequences. But here it is in living color. Sinning against a holy God deserves eternal conscious torment. Sinning against a holy God deserves to be punished with the undiluted wrath of God forever. Just as hell, just as heaven is full of eternal joy, praise God, so, heaven, so, so hell is full of eternal torment. Just as heaven is everlasting joy, so hell is everlasting torment. Now I know there are some people who say the Bible doesn't teach that hell will be eternal. That's a conversation that we can have. However, I can't escape the clear and plain teaching of passages like this. Hell will be forever and it will be overwhelmingly fierce. And so if you're not redeemed by the death of Jesus, this passage is a kind warning from God to you. This passage is a kind warning to God. Repent and turn to Jesus now. He is the only escape from the wrath of God because He is the perfect wrath-absorbing sacrifice for all who would trust in Him. And notice that this passage is not primarily directed at unbelievers. This passage has a tremendous amount to say to unbelievers, but it's not primarily directed at unbelievers. In verses 12 and 13, John is addressing believers with these truths. These truths are supposed to help us endure in the faith. Because judgment is coming, because judgment is real, therefore keep the commandments of God and the faith that are in Jesus. And therefore, verse 13, I love verse 13. I always want to do an entire sermon on this one line. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. John hears a voice from heaven saying, write this. In other words, God wants us to hear this this morning. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. What does it mean to die in the Lord? Oh, we could spend a lot of time talking about what it means to die in the Lord. But dying in the Lord basically means dying with faith in the Lord Jesus. It's a blessing to die. Because dying means resting from our labors and resting from this spiritual battle and war that we are in. Friends, I cannot wait for this rest promised in verse 
13. I cannot wait to rest from sin and temptation and the battle of this life. As Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because dying means to be with Christ. That's the second vision in verses 6 through 13. But notice the final and third vision in verses 14 through 20. The wicked are judged. The wicked are judged. So the angels warned of God's judgment and the fact that it's coming. But in this last vision of chapter 14, we see that judgment actually happens. The angels warn it's coming, and then John is seen a vision, sees a vision of what the judgment will be. The earth here is harvested. Now, there are many debated interpretations on this vision of the harvest. Uh, some actually see this one like a son of man in verse 14 as an angel... Others see it as Jesus Himself. I think it's probably describing Jesus. He is the Son of Man who fulfills the prophecy of Daniel 7. He's the one who swings the sharp sickle of God's judgment. Another debated interpretation of this vision is regarding why there are two different harvests. Verses 14-16 through 16 describe a grain harvest. And verses 17-20 through 20 describe a grape harvest. Many scholars think that the grain harvest in verses 14 through 16 describe the gathering of believers from the earth, and the grape harvest represents the judgment and punishment of the wicked. But however we see it, the bigger point is that this is describing the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment that he will bring. On the day and hour when Jesus comes, there will be no second chances. There will be only judgment. And it will be final. And look at the terrifying picture that we're given in verses 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And so the outpouring of the wrath of God in judgment is displayed here as a grape harvest. An angel gathers people of the earth like grapes and throws them into the winepress. The winepress is said to be the winepress of God's righteous wrath. Just as grapes would be trampled on in the winepress, so these people are trampled on by the very wrath of God. And the horrifying result of this, of this truth is that blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia is about 184 miles. That's roughly the length of ancient Palestine from top to bottom. And so the metaphor is of total judgment. The metaphor is of judgment as far as the eye can see. Just let this metaphor sink in for a moment. 184 miles is about the distance from here 
to Houston. A horse's bridle is four or five feet high. And verse 20 says that the blood that flowed from this winepress of the wrath of God is five feet high for 184 miles. Imagine nothing but blood all the way from here to Houston. Five feet high. And this blood is the blood of God's enemies. This is the blood of those who rebelled against God. This shows God's absolute hatred of sin and those who rebel against Him. Jesus will slay His enemies. They have rejected His full and free offer of redemption and they have chosen this punishment for themselves. The picture in Revelation 14, just before the vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out, is one of complete and utter judgment from God. Total judgment. And the angel says, this day is coming. This day will come. And so let me make sure as we close that we understand something about the reality of the wrath of God. Sin must be paid for. Sin must be paid for. God's holiness, God's justice demands it. And the Bible presents for us only two options. You can trust in Jesus gloriously and have your sins forgiven and paid for by His blood, or you can bear the full weight of the wrath of God that your sins deserve in hell. Those are the only two options. God's wrath will be dealt out either on Jesus on the cross or on you in hell. God must punish sin. And so Jesus willingly bore the wrath of God in the place of His people so that God could show His righteousness and be both just and the justifier of the ungodly in His love and forgiving sinners like us. Yeah, I want you to hear this because here's the reality. With this many people in this room, all different ages, all different walks of life, the, re the reality is, the sad reality, the, the reality that breaks my heart in this moment is that there are people in this room who aren't listening to God's Word right now. They think they know it all. They think they've got it all figured out. They think their life is all their own. And if they persist in that, they will face the wrath of God. You will face the wrath of God. If you persist in that, it will be you in the wine press, trampled under the wrath of God, mixed to full strength. And I don't want anyone in this room to face that. I don't want you to see and know the wrath of God. And so there's no use in you trying to sit here and explain it away and try to figure out a way to say, oh, he's not speaking truth. That's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. That's what he's supposed to say. See, why do that when there's an escape? Why do that when there's a, there's a Savior who would take that wrath in your place, who would bear your sins, who would forgive you of all of your rebellion against God and give you a hope and a future of joy in Him? Why would you face the wrath of God when Jesus offers you full and free forgiveness right now? Hear the good news freshly this morning. Because of Jesus, if you trust in Him, you will never experience the wrath of God. You will never have to face it on your own. 
Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that we might live with Him. Or Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Or Romans 8.1, let this land on your soul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. See, we deserve, all of us deserve, the exact opposite of what has been given to us. We deserve wrath and anger and judgment. But God gives us grace and mercy and immeasurable joy in an eternity with Him We deserve to be trampled in the winepress of the righteous wrath of God, but we have been made sons and daughters through the precious blood of Jesus. You see, friends, Jesus got in the winepress of the wrath in our place. His blood flowed from this winepress. He was the perfect propitiation for our sins. So hear the gospel truth this morning. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ, God is no longer angry with you because His anger, His wrath was spent on the willing sacrifice that Jesus gave in your place. And His wrath will never touch you if you are in Jesus. The great reformer Martin Luther once told of a dream he had in which Satan the accuser presented Luther with a long scroll in which all of his sins were written. Luther says they were all there detailed accurately and undeniably. Thoughts, words, and deeds of omission and commission with dates and times and circumstances for them all. Nothing was left out and it was almost completely full from top to bottom. And Luther says at the bottom there was just a little bit of space that remained. And so Luther, after Satan had recited all of his sins, Luther calmly and solemnly replied, Now right in the space at the bottom, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all sin. And Luther says at that moment, the accuser fled. There is only one refuge from the wrath of God. And I urge you in this moment right now, go to the refuge from wrath. Go to Jesus alone. And for those who are in Jesus, there is a glorious and joyful future awaiting us. And therefore, press on and do not give up. Endure in your faith in Jesus. And here's where I'm at with this text. And I hope this also encourages you. Friends, let these truths cause you to marvel at the gospel, to marvel at how much you have been redeemed from, but also let these truths cause you to be passionate about sharing this gospel with others. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the gospel that it's true today. Thank you that your wrath has been spent on Jesus for all those who are in Him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingly bearing that wrath in our place for our sins. And I pray that those in this room who are not trusting you, who are playing games with you, I pray that this would be a decisive moment, that you would open their eyes, that you would 
open their heart and they would trust in Jesus alone today. And Lord, I pray for those who are in Christ that this would fill us with unimaginable joy and would propel us outward to speak of Jesus to those we encounter even today. We need your help in all these things. Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much. And we pray in your name. Amen.